to make this permanent. Uh, but 1 Samuel 14, we're going to pick up in verse 16 in just a moment, but we have to see where we are. The perpetual enemies of David since the days, or excuse me, the perpetual enemies of Israel since the days of the um, Philistine. <clears throat> Okay, let's start another question. <laughs> the perpetual enemies of Israel since the days of Samson have been Philistines. Man, if you, did, if you missed that, you probably just weren't listening. The Philistines. The Philistines are the perpetual enemies of David, uh, or perpetual enemies of Israel from the days of Samson to the days of David. Think I finally got that, got that straight. And the setting in 1 Samuel 13 and 14, and they say, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, they said, we're going to reveal ourselves to the Philistines. We're going to let them see us. And if when they see us, they say, come up here, uh, we will come up here if they say, hey, you just wait down there. We'll come teach you a lesson, so we'll stay here. But they say, hey, come on up here. We'll, we'll show you something. And they probably said that from the top of the mountain, and they're not expecting these two men to launch an offensive attack, but they do. They climb up the side of the mountain, and they begin fighting with the Philistines. And the Bible tells us that some 20 of them are killed in, in just a small area uh, of land. And, and the Bible says that the earth shook. There was a great trembling, or trembling from God, the text says, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 14, verse 15, depending upon your translation. And the text says in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 16, uh, we're going to pick up here. What I want you to do is to think about some of these things. Think about what the text reveals to us about Saul's spiritual condition. What does it reveal to us about Saul's spiritual condition? Also, I want you to listen as we go over this to echoes of other events in Israel's history. Pay attention to those. Pay attention to those echoes of other events from Israel's history. But the Bible tells us that in verse 16... And I'm going to read through verse 23. Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they were here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. It happened while Saul talked to the priest that the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and increased. And Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. 
Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, fellow and, they, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around in the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in the battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle was spread beyond Beth-Avon. Okay? Even though in that day there were limited means of communication, it is fascinating to me how well these various groups set up spies and had people knowing what was going on in the enemy camp and how quickly they relayed that news. If you look in verse 16, Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. The multitude melted away. Now, that is a reference there in verse 16. That is a reference to the Philistine army. When we were back in 1 Samuel 13, it was the Israelite army that was melting away. Uh, they were going away from Saul. But now it's the Philistine army that's melting away. It's the opposite condition. Both of them will lead Saul to do something he shouldn't in both cases. But right now, he sees the Israelite, the, the Philistine army is melting away. And he sees that, that there's some kind of commotion in the Philistine camp. And so he says in verse 17, number the people, muster the people. Let's find out who is missing from our group. And when they found out who is missing, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer. And of course, that would have increased. Saul's anxiety at all of this. Jonathan and his armor bearer are missing. And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. Bring the ark of God. Now, do any of you have a different translation for bring the ark of God? Any of you have anything different right there? The Septuagint has ephod, okay? And the Hebrew text has the ark of God. And right now, let's talk about that idea of the ark of God, and then we'll talk about the possible alternative in the Septuagint. The ark of God was the ark of God ever used, the Ark of the Covenant, was it ever used to inquire of God? There's only one other instance, and that is in Judges 20, in verses 27 and 28. Judges 20, in verses 27 and 28. And what is said there, it says, the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord. 
For the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. So that's the only other instance in all the Old Testament of the Ark of the Covenant being used to inquire of God. And we don't know exactly how that worked. But uh, if the Ark indeed is the best translation in 1 Samuel 14, verse 18, those are the two reference, references to the Ark being used in such a fashion. But uh, as Mary pointed out, the term ephod was used in the Septuagint. What was the ephod? Okay, priestly garment worn by the priest, and often it seems to contain the, the stones that were used for inquiring of God, and uh, Bob has his hand up. Um, the, the Urim and the Thummim, and um, actually one time I was listening to um, somebody preach, and um, he, and, and if I, I'm not saying this to criticize, because I'll usually call them Urim and Thummim. Sometimes I'll go Urim and Thummim. Uh, probably that's closer to Hebrew pronunciation, but, you know, uh, if you're used to saying Urim and Thummim, you know, you don't even know what you're talking about. And so, uh, but wh however you pronounce it, those stones were used by the high priest for inquiring of God. And that, that's gonna, that subject's going to come back again, Lord willing, before we finish today. And so, there's a couple of other times in Samuel that an ephod is used to inquire of God. Look at 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23 in verse 9, it said, David knew that Saul was plotting evil against the Lord. So he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And he then inquires of God. 1 Samuel 23, verse 9. And if you read the context through verse 12, they inquire of God. In those cases. Also in 1 Samuel 30, in verse 7, Saul said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And then in verse 8, David inquired of the Lord and saying, shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? So both of those passages, the ephod is used to inquire of God. But whatever they use, this is the key. As Saul sees that multitude of the Philistine army, or the lookout Saul, the multitude of the Philistine army was melting away, and the priest was inquiring of God, in verse 19, Saul said to the priest, he saw the commotion, the Philistine camp was increasing, and he says to the priest in verse 9, withdraw your hand. What does that mean? What does it, Bob, I think he's ready to raise his hand. 
Not identical, but you notice again the similar fashions between Robert and Bob. And uh, go ahead. Almost had the same. Yeah. Could have. Okay. Um, it's interesting here that at least this time he starts out inquiring of God. He hasn't done that before from, from what we've seen. But as impatient as he always has been, he doesn't wait for the answer from God. Exactly. He then stops and then acts on his own. And that's been his big downfall and will continue to be so. Yeah. You are exactly right. I mean, the good thing is Saul even thinks about inquiring of God. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a big step because we have not seen that kind of action on his part before, and we will find difficulty in that matter afterward. But when he does inquire of God, he doesn't have time to wait for an answer. You see, before Samuel had said, wait for me for seven days, he saw his army melting away. He doesn't wait on Samuel, but he goes ahead and offers the sacrifice. In 1 Samuel chapter 14, he sees the Philistine army melting away. And when he sees the Philistine army melting away, in that particular passage, what he does is he's, he realizes, I need to take advantage of the confusion right here and right now. And so he doesn't have time to wait on the Lord, and he uh, tells the priest, withdraw your hand, and they charge in to battle. And every man's sword is against his fellow in verse 20. And there is great confusion. What this is meaning is the Philistines have all started to fight each other. Just like in, when Gideon attacked uh, in Judges 7, the enemy started to attack one another. Same thing here in this passage. The enemy starts to attack each other. And the Bible tells us that there was a great confusion in the Philistine camp. And the Bible says that the Hebrews, in verse 21, the Hebrews who had previously been associating with the Philistines, they change sides again. They come back uh, to the Israelites. They begin fighting with the Israelites, fighting with Saul, fighting with Jonathan, and uh, the men of Israel in verse 22 who had hidden themselves, they come out and join the battle. Nothing, nothing works quite like success. Nothing works quite like victory. And, and if you see a little victory, all of a sudden these men and their courage is raised. And the Bible tells us in verse 23, the Lord delivered Israel that day. Now, there's a couple of points to make about this. The Lord delivered Israel. It is not Saul that is said to deliver Israel. It is the Lord that is said to deliver Israel. And think about the Lord is bringing this deliverance in spite of what Bob said earlier about Saul's failure to wait on God. As we stated a couple of weeks ago, you see God's grace over every page of Scripture. The fact that they have such a foolish king who guides them 
in the wrong way and God still gives victory is a statement of his long-suffering, his compassion, his mercy, and grace to his people. What ideas do you have there in verses 16 through 23? What ideas do you have? So one thing that struck me, and you kind of already touched on it a little bit, how everybody kind of knew what was going on and figured it out. And at first I was thinking, this must have happened over several days. But then it's like the Lord delivered Israel that day. And then verse 24, and now the men of Israel were hard pressed on that day. So apparently this is all happening in a day. And it's like, wow. Yes, there's a lot recorded here. There is a lot recorded. And Saul... Not completely, but because Jonathan later said the victory was not as great as it could have been, Saul, to some degree, is bringing um, defeat out of the jaws of victory here, snatching. Um, so, what else? What other thoughts? Boyd has a comment, Robert. That's okay. He's coming to you. I, I think you can see how weak Saul is in all of this. Uh, God's given the victory. Saul doesn't seem to know what's happening or no. what, and what's going on in all of this. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. In verse, uh, let's go to verse 24 through 30. Now, here's a point I would really ask you to listen to echoes of Israel's history. Listen to echoes of Israel's history here. Does this remind you of other events in their history? So, in verse 24, Now, the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day. For Saul had put the people under oath saying, Cursed be the man who eats, any, who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. When the people entered the forest, behold, there was a flow of honey, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under oath. Therefore, he put out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the people said, your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I have tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies which they found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. Okay. Verse 24. The men of Israel were hard-pressed. 
as Sarah said. The reason? Saul made an oath. Cursed be the man who eats anything before the Lord before the Lord has avenged me of my enemies. Now, look back in verse, look it down at verse 31. Verse 31. In verse 31, it says, They struck the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon. Now, Ahijalon is 20 miles west of Michmash. 20 miles west. Have you tried running 20 miles on an empty tank? And all the time when you are pursuing someone in the midst of a conflict where the energy expended would even be greater than just a normal run. But Saul has made this statement, cursed be the man who eats anything. Cursed be the one who eats anything uh, before evening. But I want you to notice how Saul phrases it. We talked about his lack of spirituality. He calls off inquiring of God where he can take advantage of the disoriented Philistines in verses 18 and 19. In verse 24, cursed be the man who eats food before evening until I have avenged myself of my enemies. I have avenged myself on my enemies until he views these enemies not as the Lord's enemies, but as his enemies. But because of his oath, none of the people, none of the people are eating anything. And they come to a place where there is honey oozing from the ground. Jonathan has been away from the army, is oblivious to what his father has done. Jonathan comes and he sees this honey oozing on the ground. He puts his staff down. He brings up a honeycomb. He eats. His eyes are enlightened. His eyes are brightened. They say, no, no, your father has pronounced a curse upon anyone who would eat before he's avenged of his enemies. And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the people. Do you see how I just tasted a little honey and my eyes were brightened or my eyes were enlightened? How much greater the victory would have been if he wouldn't have said this? Now, there's several things that are striking to me. First of all, in verse 29, and there are two different words, even though the New American Standard uses the phrase, his eyes brightened in verse 27, and his eyes brightened in verse 29. uses the same phrase, but the Hebrew words are different for brightened. The Hebrew word that's used in verse 29, his eyes brighten, he's, he's weary, he's worn, he, he, he tastes a little honey, and his eyes brighten, is the same word used in Psalm 19, verse 8. The law of the Lord enlightens the eyes. Just like that little honey gave great strength to a weary warrior, so God's Word can do the same. Psalm 19, 
in verse 8. But I said that there are echoes of this in Israel's history. That Israel's history, there's some of the words that are used in this text that are prominent in their story. Did you pick out any that stood out to you in that respect, David? Reminds me of when Gideon was pursuing the remnants of the Midianites. Okay. And his men were famished, and he asked, went to a couple of Israelite cities mm -hmm. asking for food, and no, you don't have the, the hands of the Midianite king. They're not in your hands yet. Yes. So I'm reminded of that in this. I'm not sure that's what you're going That is, but, but no, that, that, that wasn't when it first came to my mind, but that is a very good point because when those warriors were weary and running in Judges 8, they needed to be sustained by something. But so, so, so you know, I hadn't, that wasn't one on my mind, but you're exactly right. So I'm just glad, I'm glad to add it to my repertoire, and I'll probably... David, forget uh, that you gave it to me and, and take all the credit. So, uh, but, okay, well, good, good. Uh, but what else? What else do you see? What else? Okay, Saul's rash vow. Cursed be the one who eats anything before evening. He makes a rash vow that almost cost his son his life. Jephthah made a rash vow that did, I believe, cost his daughter his life. And so it reminds us of Jephthah. Look at verse, Mary's got her hand up. I was about to spill out another one, but Mary may be about to for us. Um, I was reminded of the manna that tasted like honey. Okay, okay. And then I thought I remembered the spies in Numbers 13. They talked about the land flows with milk and honey. Okay, good. Good points. Good points. A couple of others I hadn't thought of. The, the manna, uh, Numbers 11, its taste is compared to honey. The promised land flowing with milk and honey. This is an illustration. But this might be God providing this honey for this weary army, just like God provided the manna out of heaven. Uh, but one of them I was going to also mention in verse 24 is, um, is his statement, till I have avenged myself of my enemies. You remember when Samson was dying? He said, may I be avenged of my two eyes in Judges 16 in verse 28. And so there he dies uh, asking vengeance for the eyes that he lost. Here Saul wants to avenge himself. He reminds us um, of, of Samson in that respect. Then in verse 29, he said, my father, Jonathan said, my father has troubled Israel. And that is the same thing said of Achan in Joshua 7 in verse 25. So there are all kinds of bad echoes of Israel's history in what Saul is doing. And things that associate him 
not with the brightest moments, but the lowest moments. Or if it is brighter moments, like Gideon's victory and, um, or uh, God providing uh, manna from heaven, uh, those parts, he's stopping while God is, prov- God is still providing. I may not have explained that last part well. But anyway, I hope uh, you get the idea. Anything else, David? When you're talking about the troubling the land, it reminds me, I think Ahab called Elijah the troubler of Israel. Yes. That doesn't mean he was, but <laughs> Ahab was the one. But, uh. It was, yes, of course it was. Because Elijah says, no, it's not me who's troubled Israel. It's you and your father's house who have troubled Israel. And uh, 1 Kings 18, verses 17 and 18. And uh, in verses 31 through 35, the Bible says, let's read this, they have struck among the Philistines that day, they struck among the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, and the people were very weary, and the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people ate blood, ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Each one of you bring me his ox or his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people, so all the people that night brought each one his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Okay, we we talked about the fact that the people were weary, and, and I can't imagine how overwhelmed with fatigue they were after going this distance on this high alert and then finally the victory is over and therefore they can take some of the spoil and when they do they rush upon the spoil verse 32 they rushed greedily upon the spoil and they slew uh, the animals and they were eating the animals with the blood. You see a reference to that in verse 32, verse 33, verse 34. They were eating with the blood. What's the problem with that, Sarah? Or, or, or you may have another thought. Well, they weren't supposed to eat the blood okay. because the life is in the blood. But I was also going to mention that with honey, going back, um, the story of Samson, he had honey in the lion. And so you've got Samson, honey, avenging all there together. Okay. Yeah. More than one point on Samson. Very good. Very good point. Um, but um, as Sarah said, God stated Genesis 9, 4, the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. 
Therefore, the people were told not to eat the blood. In Leviticus chapter uh, 17, verses 8 through 16, you see that prohibition against eating blood. It was something before the law of Moses in Genesis 9. It was something during the law of Moses in Leviticus 17. And it seems like to me still applies today in Acts 15. So eating the blood still involved in these instances. And, uh, but, but it was wrong. It was, all, it was always forbidden. But the people are so anxious, they're killing the animals, they're eating before they are bled properly. Now, one thing that's striking here, when Saul said, cursed be the man who eats before I'm avenged of my enemies, they didn't disobey king. But when God said, don't eat with the blood still in the animal. They disobey God. They're more concerned about violating the king's oath than they are God's word. Craig, no, go ahead. That was, no, go, go ahead. And I, thought, I thought you had a comment about another thing. I apologize. Okay. You need to give him from the mic. He's, he's spilling out great truths here. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, God recognized you, you, you did it at the beginning. I started on my thing and I said, so I'm going to finish this and come to him. But I'm sorry. I preached your point. You know, they already had a king. They already had a king and basically said, we don't want God as our king. We want this man over here. And so they, they clearly are demonstrating they have switched their allegiances. They are more willing to follow a man. Yes. And his uh, rash foolishness and less willing to follow the the direct commandments of their true king yes exactly right exactly uh we got another one here robert elijah i just think it's interesting how saul fails to recognize his responsibility for their sin because he kind of put them in this situation oh yeah where they'd be tempted to eat hastily um but he says, you have dealt treacherously. Let's fix your problem. And then later when sin comes up, he's like, oh, yeah, let's put all Israel over there and me and my son Jonathan over here. It's definitely y'all's problem. Yeah. And it, God says the other thing. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. I, and I meant to make that point and missed it. So verse 33 is what Elijah mentions. He says, um, he said, the they look look at the look at the pronouns verse 33 then they told Saul they told Saul saying behold the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood and he Saul said you have acted treacherously roll a great stone to me I think the text is clear that this is Saul's fault more than anybody. This is Saul's fault that the people are doing this because he's made a rash vow and they could have eaten the honey, which is clean food, and, but instead, because he made the rash vow, the people are weary. He still accuses them of wrong instead of acknowledging that he has done wrong. You have acted 
treacherously. And, but, but the statement, we, we, I told you to look what the text says about Saul's spiritual condition. What do you see here that shouts volumes about his spiritual condition? Well, he had this stole this uh, let's see the stone rolled uh, yeah Put, roll a great stone to me here he sets up an altar he's going to offer the sacrifice he's going to atone for their sins uh, you know it's all him okay it's I I I okay okay and not going anywhere near the way that they should have. In obeying God. And, you know, it's all his fault. Okay. But he says, it's not my fault. Yeah. He, he, he seems to be pointing the blame at them. In that statement in verse 35. Go ahead. When you're focused on yourself, you can't see anything else but yourself and yeah. your concerns. You're not looking out amongst the people. You're not wanting to seek God. You're focus is inward and at yourself and not anything else. And I see that the people in requesting um, a king, mm -hmm. they already had one. Um, again, selfishness. All, as Bob said, the eye is on themselves. I, I, I. But yeah. again, Saul can't focus on anything that he should be mm -hmm. because he's focus, focused on himself. We are just as guilty of when we make the focus about ourselves, we won't allow ourselves to see anything that's going on around us that needs to be addressed because we're so inward focused about me and my needs and not anyone else. Yes, yes. Yes, what you all are saying about Saul is very true, and it is the opposite of how he started, it seems. But two, to me, a striking statement is just that statement in verse 38. It was the first altar he built. And it's built, 35, I'm sorry, verse 35. It was the first altar he built, verse 35. And, you know, here it's built not, it's just built out of necessity so the people don't sin by eating blood. So Saul was had too big of an advantage not to attack right now in verses 18 and 19. He makes a rash oath and makes it all about himself, as, as Beth and Bob were stating in verse 24. And, you know, he builds his first altar simply out of necessity. Well, let's see the part that Elijah talked about just a second ago. Let me read 36 through 46. And it says, Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil from among them until morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. And Saul said, draw here. 
Draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not one of the people answered him. Not one of all the people answered him. Verse 40. Then they said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Verse 41 is going to differ a lot in some of your translations. The ESV will be a lot different than what I'm about to read in the New American Standard. Therefore, God, therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give a perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. Saul said, may God do, so, do this to me and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die, who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far be it from me, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. So Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. So, verse 36, let's go after the Philistines, let's pursue them. That's Saul's proposal. They've collected themselves, they've had something to eat, let's keep on pursuing, let's wipe them out. The people say, do whatever seems good to you, but the priest says, let's inquire of God first. Not Saul. The priest says, let's inquire of God first. And so the question was, shall we go and pursue the Philistines? And the Lord gave no answer. Now, why was that? What was that? It may be that the Urim and Thummim, one of the ideas is they were different colored stones. And if they, one stone was on one color and one stone was on the other color, then there was a no answer. Is that right? Nobody knows and will never know unless we discover those stones, which I think the likelihood is almost nothing. But it says, the Lord didn't answer. And so Saul says, okay, come here. As the Lord lives, who has delivered Israel... Verse 39, let's see who this sin is with. Whether it is with, he said, even if this sin is with Jonathan, my son, he will surely die. And the people don't say anything. God didn't answer him. And right now, the people don't answer him. The people said to Saul, you do what seems good in your eyes. He sets the people on one side, he and Jonathan on the other, and the lot falls on Jonathan and Saul, and they cast lots between them, and the lot falls on Jonathan. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't know exactly how to explain. Because it seems like to me the lot should have fell on Saul. He was the guilty person for making the oath. 
But Saul asked, what have you done? And, and he states, I only tasted a little honey. And he said, must I die or I must die? And God says in verse 44, may God do this to me and more also for you shall surely die, Jonathan. I looked. You shall surely die, two words in Hebrew, same two words, same order as in Genesis 2 and verse 17. On the day you eat, you shall surely die. And Saul uses this of his son. But the people now are not silent. Verse 45, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? God used him to bring salvation, to bring deliverance. God used him to do this, and no, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. And the people rescued Jonathan that day. And Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Um, I want someone who has the ESV um, to read verse 41 for us, who, who, who volunteers to do this. David's got that up. Let's look at verse 41 in your translation. I just want to show you how different uh, this is. It follows mainly the Septuagint, while the Hebrew text has what the New American Standard has. Most. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Okay, very good. Um, does anybody have any questions about that? It just, what it emphasizes is they're using the Urim and Thummim or Urim and Thummim to inquire of God. Okay? Um, I don't know. It doesn't lead us in any different direction. Any, any thoughts or questions? NIV is? Okay, I thought I'd check that, and I didn't, I didn't remember that. Sarah? Uh, go, what's that? Okay, Sarah, okay, we'll, we'll read it first, Sarah. Okay, go ahead, NIV, David. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Thoman. Jonathan and Saul were taken by Lot, and the men were clear. Okay, thank you. Thank you very good, very much. And I appreciate you pointing that out because I've, I've forgotten that about the NIV. Sarah? I was going to comment on something else, if that's okay. What was that? I was going to comment on something else, if that's okay. Okay, yes. So, in Judges... We see the, the phrase, there, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Here they have a king and they're still doing what is right in their own eyes. You know, do whatever seems good to you. And, and it's just like 
it hasn't changed the root problem that they have. Yes. And, and now it is specifically said about the king that he's just doing what's right in his own eyes in verse, I think it's verse 36 and verse 40. And that is a good point uh, to make. Very good. Very good. Yes, Craig. And I won't talk before Craig's point this time. Um, just to go along with what Sarah said, you know, twice in verse 36 and in verse 40, they say to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. Do whatever seems good to you. But they finally get to a point in verse 45 where they, they are not willing to let him do that anymore. Where they finally recognize, no, what is good to you is not the right godly thing to do here. And they, they stand up to their leader and say, this is not going to happen. Yeah. We recognize that... That true justice here, what is right, is that, that you let your son live. He worked with God, it says. He worked with God this day. Yes. Um, so I appreciate the, the people are very easily cowed. They are very easily susceptible to just doing whatever. But they finally reach a breaking point here that I at least appreciate where they say, no, en enough is enough. This is the right thing to do, yes. and, and we're going to stand for it. So. And what a different picture of Saul than in 1 Samuel 11, verses 12 and 13, when no one will be put to death today because the day the Lord has brought a great deliverance, and now he is willing to put to death even his own son. We did not get to that last section in 47 through 52. Lord willing, we'll touch upon that Wednesday night and go into 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, thank you.